Well, today we're in Matthew chapter 7. It's only taken us seven months to do two chapters of Matthew, so we're humming along just fine. Matthew chapter 7. And as we begin this morning, let's pray for those who are traveling. It's a busy weekend, and uh, it's like the big last hurrah weekend before the school year, so let's pray for safety for everyone. Lord, thank you that you've allowed us to come together to be with each other, to learn from your word. We just want to now pray for those that we might know, those who are traveling out on the roads. We pray you'd keep them safe this weekend, Lord, and bring them back safely. And we pray for this upcoming school year, that our kids, Lord, would be blessed in their studies and you direct their steps. And now speak to us, Lord, through your word as we study this portion of it, the words of the Lord Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. For we ask it in his name. Amen. Somebody once wisely said, you'll never find a perfect church. If you do, don't join it because you'll ruin it. Now, it's pretty obvious from looking at these verses in Matthew chapter 7 that Jesus never anticipated a perfect church. He writes these words, these admonitions about judging one another to his disciples In other words, Jesus assumes there's going to be tensions, there's going to be some interpersonal relational difficulties, and he's right. Because a simple glance at the New Testament will show you that, even from the earliest chapters of the book of Acts in chapter 5, where Ananias and Sapphira pretend to be something they're not, pretend to be holier than they are, and they eventually drop out of church, quite literally, they die. Then we read a little bit further where Paul and Barnabas had a dispute with each other. These two giants in the faith, they argued over an issue. And it wasn't a doctrinal issue. It was a personal issue regarding Barnabas' nephew, John Mark. The Bible tells us the contention between them was so sharp that they eventually had to split company. And then we get to 1 Corinthians where Paul writes a letter to that church And he says, for there is envy and strife and contentions among you. That's all the early church. That's why I smile a bit when people say, we need to become like the New Testament church. We are. Don't worry. And if you're looking for perfection, you're going to be disappointed. Hey, if you want perfection, look in the mirror. If you find it there, seek it elsewhere. Now, at the same time, one of the saddest sights to see is a group of Christians who are torn by envy, strife, contentions, finger-pointing. Karen Maines wrote a book called The Key to a Loving Heart, and uh, she has a little section in it called The Brawling Bride. It's a parable of Jesus Christ and his church. The bride, of course, is the church. The bridegroom is Christ, and in her parable, it's the the climactic point of the wedding ceremony. And um, the families are seated. The people are waiting in anticipation. The groom and his attendants are in place. The minister has his Bible open. And the organist begins the bridal march. Everyone rises to their feet and they look back where the bride is coming down the aisle. As they see the bride, they gasp because the bride's gown is torn There's mud all over it. Her veil and hair is disheveled. 
Her uh, eye is swollen and purple, and she's limping. And the author asks, concerning Christ, the bridegroom, doesn't he deserve better than this? His bride, the church, has been fighting again. The church is called in the scripture, as most of you know, the body of Christ. And one of the greatest feelings to live with is a healthy, physical body. And just as that's one of the greatest feelings, one of the worst feelings is when your body isn't functioning the way it ought to be functioning. I've always enjoyed good health. I really didn't know what it was like to be in a hospital until one evening when I ate something, and I don't know exactly what happened, but it was some weird burrito somewhere on a Sunday night that landed me up in the hospital at 2 in the morning, doubled over with abdominal pain. They did x-rays, blood work, they waited a few days, and nothing showed up. So the next morning, the doctor must have been desperate, but they ordered an odd test called a barium enema. I'm not going to describe it. But all I know is that while I was going through the test, I thought of the words of Job. That which I have feared has come upon me. (laughs) And I started thinking about my body, wondering what little part within my human body is failing to cooperate to cause this much anguish. The body wasn't cooperating smoothly together. And so often the church can act like that. It resembles a diseased body. And the enemy loves it. The Puritan author John Trapp said, The devil loves to go fishing in troubled waters. That's why he creates so much trouble. So here's the question for us this morning as we go through the first few verses of chapter 7. When is it appropriate to judge within the church? When is it right to confront a person who's a brother or sister in the faith? Can the Christian ever be a critic? Are we just a passively wink at sin and go, oh, whatever, grace covers all, or do we do something about it? Well, we're going to look at verse 1 through verse 6 this morning and uh, basically divide it up this way. Judging the wrong way versus judging the right way. Judging the wrong way is being a fault finder. Judging the right way is being... A delicate discerner, fault finder versus delicate discerner. Let's begin then with uh, verse 1 and look at uh, the definition of what he means. Judge not that you be not judged. Now I want you to know something. There was a novelist named Leo Tolstoy, a Russian novelist, who wrote a book um, uh, about different issues. And um, one of the things he said concerning this verse is, based upon this, Jesus is teaching we should never go to court ever, that there should be the abolition of all courtrooms across the land. Judge not that you be not judged. However, it's obvious that the context is individual interpersonal relationships, not the public forum. Others looking at this verse, judge not that you be not judged, and many well-meaning Christians even, think that Christians should never raise 
the flag of discernment. Never make any kind of an evaluation or a strong doctrinal conviction because if they do, they're being divisive and judgmental. And after all, the Bible says, judge not. And so some mistakenly take it to mean never exercise discernment. Well, what if Elijah would have thought that way? Would he have ever confronted Ahab or Jezebel or the prophets of Baal? What if Paul the Apostle thought that way? Would he have ever stood up in Jerusalem to the legalists? What if Jesus believed it meant that? He's the one who said it. Would he have ever stood up and said what he said in Matthew chapter 23 to the scribes and Pharisees when he says, you hypocrites, you whitewashed sepulchers, etc., etc., etc.? No. In fact, go down to verse 6. In the same paragraph, look at what Jesus says. Do not give what is holy to the dogs, nor cast your pearls before swine. Well, how can you tell what a dog is or a swine is unless you exercise some form of evaluating judgment? Go down to verse 15. Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruit. Well, how can you assess their fruit, their teaching, if you're afraid of judging them? Here's another, Matthew chapter 18, Jesus tells us to confront a sinning brother, and if that brother or sister doesn't receive our approach, we bring somebody else with us, and if they don't receive both of us, we take it before the church, and if they don't receive what the church as a whole says, Jesus says, treat them like a heathen and a tax collector. Well, how are you going to obey that unless you have some form of discerning, evaluating judgment? And then in John chapter 7, Jesus actually commands us to judge. He says, don't judge according to outward appearance, but judge a righteous judgment. Here's another one, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 15. I'll read it to you. The spiritual man makes judgments about all things. The spiritual man makes judgments about all things. Here's another one, Galatians chapter 1, verse 8. If we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel than the one that you have received, let him be eternally condemned. Now you put all of those together and you discover that judging in some cases is not only legitimate, it's mandated. We're commanded to do it. You say, well, why does that have to be? Why can't we all just get along? Because we're humans. Because we're people, and people don't always agree. Only dead people agree. Walter Martin used to tell me, if you can find two people that agree on everything, one of them isn't thinking. So don't be unrealistic about the Christian church. Even spiritual people will disagree. One author likened the Christian church to a herd of porcupines on a cold, wintry night. It's actually a great analogy. Imagine. you got a couple porcupines, two or three, and it's cold, so the cold air drives them together. They have to make adjustments with each other. Because though they get close and close and close, if they get a little too close, they poke each other. And so the author said, we need each other, but we needle each other at the same time. 
We may have many fine points like porcupines, but we have to adjust just right. It's not always easy. Have you ever uh, gone on a family vacation for a long trip in a car? And if you had a big family, like I used to do that as a kid, you know, you swear that you love them deeply before the vacation. But by the end of the vacation, you sort of wonder. They're in your family, but there's some disagreements. So what does it mean when Jesus says, do not judge? The word, Greek word, krino, krino, is a word that means judge or discern or evaluate. It doesn't mean don't assess people. It means don't judge them harshly. That's the idea. Harsh judgment, bitter judgment. It describes a self-righteous person who's hypercritical of others and judges the motives of people without having the full information, jumping to a conclusion, not having the information, not knowing the motivation. In other words, this person is, by nature, a fault finder, or you might call him a sin sniffer. You know any people like that? As soon as they come into an assembly of Christians, it's, I'm going to find a sin right now. They're like the gospel Gestapo, you know? It's like they're God's policemen. They think the worst. I can imagine a few examples of this, snap judgments, judging motives without knowing full information. Let's say you see somebody eating out. You see him eating dinner out a lot, and you think, well, how can they afford to eat out so much on their income? Well, well maybe, just maybe, they've been given some gift certificates. You don't know. Or you go to somebody's house. Gosh, she keeps such a messy kitchen. Well, maybe she's made a decision to forego the cleaning of the house to spend more time with the children. Or let's say you say, boy, that person gets up so late. He's so irresponsible because he sleeps in every day. Well, could it be that he has a night job? Or could it be that he's a night person and not a morning person? You don't know full information. So to make snap judgments based upon what you see briefly in behavior could fall into this category. Nat Farrell was a man from Birmingham, England. Nat had a heart attack. Went to the doctor. Doctor said, Nat, no work. Don't work. Kick back. Relax. Stay home. He did until he got an unsigned letter from a neighbor. By the way, just a note of personal advice. Whenever you get a letter that's unsigned, just don't even read it. Throw it away. He made a mistake and he read it. And it said, get your weeds up. We in our neighborhood keep our gardens clean and tidy. You have time and money on your hands, Nat. Clean up and tidy up your garden or we will notify the proper authorities. Well, Nat was afraid he'd lose his home. The authorities would be contacted, so he got the lawnmower out and started pushing. It was a hot day. He collapsed in two minutes, and he died. He died. He wasn't being lazy. He wasn't putting something off. He wasn't being negligent. He was sick, and yet his motives were judged. Solomon said in Proverbs 18:13, "He who gives an answer before he hears the matter, it is a folly and a shame to him. Get all the information. 
One poet said, Judge not the workings of his brain, and of his heart thou cannot see. What looks to thy dim eyes a stain in God's pure light may only be a scar brought from some well-won field where thou wouldst only faint and yield. So we are not to judge for condemnation. We are to judge for identification. You will know them by their fruits. We'll get into that more later when we get to that text. Now, let's go back to our text here in in chapter 7, and let's read a little bit further. Jesus says, don't judge lest you be judged. Now, he's going to give you three reasons why not. Three reasons why this crino, this hypercritical judging of motivations without all the information is wrong. Number one, because you're not the final judge. You're not the final judge. Judge not that you be not judged. Whenever you judge someone like this, you are placing yourself and others in the wrong role. God is the judge. He's the final authority. Here was the problem. The Pharisees had a method. They set their own standards. They made up their own rules quite apart from the written word of God, and they judged others by their own standards, all the while forgetting whose courtroom they were in. They were in God's courtroom. They took the position of being the judge when, in effect, it was God who would be the judge. You remember the woman who was brought to Jesus in John chapter 8 because she was caught in the act of adultery? And they brought her to Jesus to be stoned. And remember how righteous they sounded? The law commands that she be stoned to death. Did it? Is that what the law said? Yeah, sort of. But it also said that he should be stoned as well as she, right? If you're committing adultery, let's see, last time I checked, it takes two. But they only brought her. That's why Jesus said, hey, if you're without sin, pick up the first rock and throw it at her. And they all walked away. Paul in Romans 14 said, Who are you to judge another man's servant? To his own master he stands or he falls, and God is able to make him stand. Here's the simple truth. God is God. You are not. Okay, there's another reason why we're discouraged from judging. Verse 2, because judgment is a boomerang. Look at it. For with what judgment you judge, you will be judged. And with what measure you use, it will be measured back to you. You've heard the old saying, those who live in glass houses shouldn't throw stones. Judgment is like a boomerang. You'll be hung on your own gallows. Ask Haman back in the book of Esther, who created gallows to hang Mordecai, the Jewish leader, and he was hung on his own gallows. Also, What kind of a witness is it to judge like this in a wrong fashion? Dwight L. Moody, he was an evangelist from Chicago, Illinois in the last century. Very powerful guy. Um, uh, I would say he was articulate in one sense. He was fiery, but he didn't pronounce words the right way. He wasn't the most educated, etc. So he was often criticized. This is what he said. You may find hundreds of fault finders among professed Christians, 
But all of their criticism will not lead one solitary soul to Christ. I never preached a sermon yet that I could not pick to pieces and find fault with. But I feel that Jesus Christ ought to have a far better representative than I am. Yet, I've lived long enough to discover that there's nothing perfect in this world. If you're waiting until you find a perfect preacher or a perfect church, I'm afraid you'll have to wait till the millennium arrives. So, uh, don't judge because you're not the final judge. Don't judge because judgment is a boomerang. It'll come back at you. And number three, because that kind of judgment is hypocrisy. Look at verse 3. Why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but you don't consider the plank in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me remove that speck from your eye, and look, a plank is in your own eye. Hypocrite. First remove the plank from your own eye. Then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Now, here's something interesting to note. The speck seems to be of the same substance as the plank. What this implies is that the splinter that I see in my brother's eye is of the same material that's in my own eye, only his is smaller and mine's bigger. Which brings up a point. The reason I can spot certain sins so easily is because they're my sins. I become sensitive to them. Example, David committed adultery. You know the story. The prophet Nathan came to David and told him a little parable about a guy who was poor and a guy who was rich, and the guy who was poor had only one little pet lamb, and the guy who was rich had flocks. But the rich guy took the poor guy's lamb and killed it and gave it to his friends for supper. You know what David said? He said, the man who did that will surely die. What? Die? Let's see. The law required restitution. You pay the guy back. You don't kill a guy for killing a lamb. Why was David so harsh? Because we are always harsh with the sins that are lurking in our own heart. David had the beam and he saw a speck. And he was sensitive to it. And there's only one word for that kind of behavior. Jesus says it in verse 5. Hypocrite, hypocritas, actor, pretender. A cranky old grandpa visited his family. It was Sunday afternoon and he was tired. He took a nap inside the house. His grandson, for a joke, took a little piece of Lindberger cheese and smeared it on grandpa's mustache while he was taking a nap. When grandpa woke up, he stood up and he said, This room stinks. He walked down to the hallway, went into the kitchen, said, This room stinks too. And he walked through the house and he said, The whole house stinks. He walked outside and he shouted at the top of his lungs, The whole world stinks. Isn't it amazing how good we are at smelling other sins? It's because we're familiar with that smell ourselves. We're seeing something that's in our own hearts. Okay, all of that then is judging the wrong way. That's fault-finding. That's sin-sniffing. What about judging the right way? Yes, there is a right way to judge. Remember John chapter 7, Jesus said, Judge ye a righteous judgment. 
There's an old Chinese proverb that says, don't remove a fly from your friend's forehead with a hatchet. It's good advice. You might say, keeping that in mind, don't try to remove a speck from your brother's eye when you've got a big pine tree hanging out of your eye. Excuse me, you have a little speck. So, what's the right way? Look at verse 5 again. Be a helper to your brother. Be a helper to your brother. Here it is. First, remove the plank from your own eye. It's good advice. Then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. When we confess our own sins, when we deal with our own sins, it helps other people because we're more interested then in restoring them than destroying them. We deal with our own. We confess our sins. David did this. He writes in Psalm 51, after he committed adultery with Bathsheba and after he learned his lesson, he prayed, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Then I will teach transgressors your way. You follow how that goes? Create in me a clean heart, renew a right spirit within me. Then I will teach transgressors your way. So you remove first the plank, and then you deal with the speck. Galatians chapter 6, verse 1 says, If a brother is overtaken in any fault or trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of meekness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Listen to it in the New Living Translation. If a Christian is overcome by some sin, you who are godly should gently and humbly Help that person back onto the right path and be careful not to fall into the same temptation yourself. I have a brother in Palm Desert who's a golf pro. And uh, he'll take golf clubs and he'll describe them. He describes the new drivers as being more forgiving than the older drivers. It's an interesting term, more forgiving. What he means is that they're, they're, you know, have you seen golf clubs? They're about this big these days. You couldn't miss a ball if you tried. The idea is that you make it light and hollow so that if you hit the ball off of either the the toe uh, or the heel uh, a little bit, since the sweet spot is enlarged, you can let it go relatively straight. The older clubs were narrow and had a tiny sweet spot. And I heard him describe those clubs, and I thought, boy... Wouldn't it be great if Jesus' church had a big sweet spot and were like the new golf clubs, more forgiving, more apt to forgive rather than to judge? Finally, look at verse 6. We come to a close. Not only by helping your brother, but by being discerning to your neighbor. He says, Do not give what is holy to the dogs, nor cast your pearls before swine lest they trample them under their feet and turn and tear you in pieces. Now, this sort of startles us, doesn't it? Because of what Jesus just spoke against. He says, don't judge people. This beams and motes and specks and don't cast your pearls before pigs. Don't give what's holy to dogs. You go, whoa. Well, this now shows us the balance. There are times that we must make discerning judgments with people. 
Remember Jesus called Herod that fox? And he called Pharisees brood of vipers, whitewashed tombs. So there are times when judgments are necessary. Here's the big picture of these first six verses. Be forgiving, be loving, but be discerning because some people trample the truth. Be loving, be forgiving, but be discerning because some people trample the truth. By the way, Jesus uses the term dogs. Don't think of your pet. The the term he used in this text were those wild mongrel scavengers that went from garbage dump to garbage dump in ancient cities. The point is be careful what you say to certain people because they love to blaspheme. Now, I want to close considering this. This is what Jesus said What about what Jesus did? How did Jesus himself implement his own teaching of being helper or discerner with different groups of people? That helps. First example is at the beginning of his ministry. Second example is at the end of his ministry. At the beginning of his ministry, he's in Jerusalem. He's attracting a lot of attention. Crowds are following him. They're coming out to see him. But it says this in John chapter 2, while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover, many people saw the miraculous signs he was doing and believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them because he knew all men. Now, the very next verse introduces us to chapter 3 of John. That was John chapter 2. John chapter 3, we meet a guy named Nicodemus who comes to Jesus at night. And he's inquiring and he's following Jesus too. And Jesus opens up and shares truth with him. Why? Because he was genuinely inquiring. They, the crowd, were not. It was discernment. He was, would be casting pearls before swine with the crowd, but he was discerning enough to help Nicodemus. Here's another example. At the end of Jesus' ministry in Jerusalem, he had a trial before Pontius Pilate and another before Herod. When he stood before Pontius Pilate, though at first he was silent, eventually Jesus spoke of truth and spoke of the kingdom that was coming. But he stood before King Herod, who wanted to see Jesus do some miraculous trick, and Jesus didn't speak a single word. He was discerning. He shared truth with one. He didn't say a thing with another. So, all of that to say... Pray that God will give you discernment when and how to speak, even confront people, when to open the mouth and when to close it. A closed mouth gathers no feet, it's been said. (laughs) Hey, uh, let me tell you this story. A pastor's wife was going into surgery, and the pastor was there at her bedside, and she looked up at him and said, you know, if I don't survive... I just want you to know that there's a box, a shoe box, underneath the bed. I want you to just take it, and uh, there's some things in it I, I want you to have. And uh, that's if I don't survive. And so she went into surgery. He was curious, of course, went right home and looked under the bed, and he found a shoe box with $10,000 and three eggs. Well, she recovered, and she was in recovery room. Husband came to her and said, uh, could you explain these contents? 
She said, sure. As soon as we got married, I was determined that I wouldn't be a nagging spouse. I didn't want to be critical, so I decided every time you preached a bad sermon, I wouldn't say a word at all. I wouldn't criticize you. I'd just get an egg and put it in the shoebox. Well, he's thinking to himself, wow, 31 years of marriage and only three bad sermons, not not bad. But then she continued. She goes, and then any time I had a dozen eggs, I'd sell them and put the money in a shoebox. <laughs> 10,000 bucks. What a great wife. She didn't say a word and she saved a lot of money. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just want to be creative in our speech and in our communication to not hypercritically or hypocritically judge, but to use discernment to know the difference between those who might be spiritual dogs and those who are not, those who are swine and those who are not, those who bear fruit and those who do not. Help us, Lord, to live with conviction and to speak words of truth and discernment to protect sheep and to honor your name, but to speak the truth in love because really we're not the judge. You are. You're the master. And you said that that judgment would come back on us with the same measure. So help us as your people to live honestly and with integrity in Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. Amen.